Oh, please, haven't you done enough to me? TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF, indeed. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and what an hour it will be, scintillating, as always, whenever we have the lovely, the talented, and the extremely well-educated Dr. Caroline Heldman of Occidental College with us. This is going to be extraordinary, but let's say hello. We have to pay obeisance to he who keeps us on the air. We're talking about bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you today, Benny? Doing very well. Obeisance. That's a new one for me. Please explain. Oh, it's the idea. It's, it's kind of like kowtowing. It's like, you know, giving you more than your props, kissing butt, all those sorts. Of I things. like it already. I like Bowling. it already. <laughs> we bow to you, Benny. You. As all the show hosts do, why should we be any Stop. different? I have a lot of control. Maybe that's it. That's it. Okay. You, you have all the power. <laughs> yeah. Be nice to that guy or he'll cut us off. Well, you, you get a university professor and you got to be throwing around the occasional 50 cent word. I liked it. All right. Good to have you with us as always, Benny. Uh, there are, this is an hour I look forward to every time Caroline joins us because it's really a potpourri, but by that I don't mean anything superficial. It's just no. that we have so many options for conversation. I, I have eight things on my list. We'll, we'll for be, example. We'll be lucky to get to three or four of them. Dr. Caroline Heldman, professor at Occidental College, earned her PhD in political science from Rutgers University and specializes in the American presidency and systems of power. She previously taught at Whittier College, Fairfield University, and Rutgers University. Professor Heldman graduated summa cum laude with a degree in business management from Benny, Woo, Washington State right University, yeah. and has worked extensively in the private sector. Dr. Heldman's work has been featured in the top journals in her field including the American Political Science Review, the Journal of Politics, Political Psychology, and Political Communications. She co-edited the popular book, Rethinking Madam President, Is the U.S. Ready for a Woman in the White House? 2007. Dr. Heldman's work has also been featured in many popular publications, including the New York Times, U.S. News and World Report, Ms. Magazine, the Huffington Post, and the Daily Beast, and I have to apologize because I don't have her other book on here, which is sitting on our library shelves. Dr. Caroline Heldman, we will update your intro and welcome to Manson Mitchell again. It's wonderful to be here. Great to see both of you. Are you out of the, well, yes, we have it. And that's the crowd cheering on the Palouse. Got your college football. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Uh, Caroline, I wanted to uh, ask you first, I mean, just checking in, it's wildfire season. It breaks our hearts. I mean, I lived in Southern California for 26 years, grew up in Orange County. And yes, we had some wildfires. I can remember standing on an apartment balcony and watching one as the flames were leaping across the road in Brea, California, there in the canyon. And I thought, man, I would hate for this to be a yearly event. Well, all these years later, it's just tragic the way that these record-setting wildfires best each other, if that's the right way to put it, year after year. Indeed. Uh, I mean, it's 
we have five times uh, more wildfires here than we did a decade ago. This is climate change, right? Um, thankfully, we have not been affected yet. I'm down in Los Angeles, Northern California. There are some fires, uh, but it is it is far more extreme and it is getting more extreme each year. And this is, I, I think the, uh, the climate change deniers who've been um, active since the early 1990s uh, are being made fools of every single hurricane and wildfire season that we have. I was saying to Gary, we actually do watch the Weather Channel. I mean, I tune that in every morning just to see what the percentage of rain it, it is that we're going to get that. Do you guys perform your own uh, green screens? Do you work? Do you work the map at all? Uh, no. Oh, okay. You should try <laughs> it. It's fun. Scares me. <laughs> it's really fun, to be honest. It, it looks it. like a lot of fun. <laughs> But uh, I said to Gary the other day, if you if you look at the map of the United States, the whole east side is in floods and the whole west side is in fires. And doggone it, Dr. Heldman, that was the next thing that the Weather Channel put up on the screen, side by side, fire on the left, flooding on the right. And so it is... Uh, definitely time to really, really pay attention and do something. In fact, we're past time for paying attention and doing something, but you could see it right there. Fires, floods, all in the same country, all at the same time. Indeed, okay. just one disaster after another. And, and the science behind it, you know, people, uh, we used to talk about, um, you know, global warming, but it's, it's really about the, uh, the warm part being more, being hotter and the cold part being colder, right? So it's about the extremes um, and that and that changing weather patterns. It's also about the fact that our temperature overall is going up, which means polar ice cap is melting, sea levels yeah. are rising, um, the temperature of the ocean is changing. So the events happening there, the water cycle is interrupted, the events happening there are becoming more intense. And, and folks a lot, for a long time, the deniers were saying, well, this is just natural. But if you look at what the chart looks like in terms of the extremity of weather. There's nothing natural about what's going on right now. It's human-made. We, we live about three miles or so from the Gulf of Mexico, and we're crossing our fingers for waterfront property soon. Yeah, our property <laughs> values will go up, I guess. Now, speaking of extremes, oh, yes. we have... Oh. We have the great governor, Ron DeSantis. That great in quotes. Yeah. Yes, we, uh, Ron DeSantis is the governor. He's also in a straw poll that does not include Donald Trump for the Republican nomination in 2024. He is way above the rest of the field. And I think Mike Pence is down around zero, by the way, there. But Governor Ron DeSantis, we have people in our extended family, Caroline, who have told us in no uncertain terms how blessed we are to have a man like Ron DeSantis for governor, and they pray that he runs for president. And I slap my forehead and say, well, it's if you lived here, you might not feel that way. But Gary, you have a question. Yes, I do. Dr. Heldman. We are talking to an eminent academician, and I can't think of a more pertinent question to put to this lady right here and now. Recently, and I guess, that, I don't know if there was some help from the legislature or not, but maybe this was an executive decision. I'm not quite sure about that. But at any rate, with the blessing of Governor Ron DeSantis, there is a new policy being implemented by which at state universities, which is to say state-funded universities, they are going to begin taking surveys. 
Surveys of what you ask? Surveys of political opinions, beliefs held by the student body. And my understanding is that those universities who balk at the idea of doing this risk losing funding for their non-compliance. Dr. Heldman, what say you? Well, so Ron DeSantis, I was hoping you could explain him to me. Uh, I mean, he that straw poll, he's, he is your front runner right now for the Republican Party, right? If you're in the Republican Party, he's the front runner except for Donald Trump. And I just to follow up on that straw poll, uh, there was a recent uh, national poll where Donald Trump's still polling at 52%, the favored candidate for 2024, and DeSantis polls at um, around 19% with Trump in the race, but then he goes up to 29% if you pull him out. So if Trump is not in the race, uh, DeSantis, if the election were held today, would be the front runner by a wide margin. And as you point out, uh, Mike Pence is not really in the running. Um, I think the Republican Party will likely embrace DeSantis and very and maybe is already doing this in subtle ways because he appeals to the same folks who are very fear-based about the shift, what they perceive to be the shifting social order. So Trump really taps into those fears. You know, people who believe that they are losing ground because women and people of color are gaining ground. So those folks were, who are concerned about uh, the shifting social order because it's a scary time, who Trump makes feel good about you know pushing back against uh, what they what they believe uh, is to be a shifting social order. They maybe wouldn't put it in those terms, but but he appeals to those folks. DeSantis appeals to them in the same way, and that's what this law is all about, right? He's actually passed a series of laws that makes um, folks who are uh, you know racist folks feel good about racism, sexist folks feel good about sexism. To be really blunt about it, and so uh, but DeSantis doesn't isn't a wild card like Donald Trump, right? So if I'm the Republican Party, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, hey. DeSantis is going to appeal to the same fear-based folks, and he's going to do it effectively, but he's not going to be the wild card that Donald Trump was. So I would assume that they're really going to get behind him and try to elevate him as the front runner over Donald Trump. That would be my guess. But your question was about this law, which DeSantis, as I understand it, signed three laws. And so it came through the legislature. He signed it into effect. Um, it reminds me of, you know, we have tenure at, at colleges and universities for a reason, uh, because the one of the, the ways in which fascist regimes and totalitarian regimes will control a society is by first going after academics, uh, because academics, and I have plenty of critiques of academics. I actually mostly think they're kind of lazy cowards, which is a, a weird thing to say, given what I'm going to say next, which is they're seen as a massive threat. I, I think we're far less of, we're, we're politically lazy and cowardly, where actually very few academics are public intellectuals who use their knowledge in order to influence uh, public policy. And so, but the right wing has kind of built up academics as being this big threat. So Ron DeSantis is going after a straw person. He is, he is going after this idea of indoctrination. We know from uh, data that 95% uh, of professors do not attempt indoctrination, meaning that they're, they see their role as getting students to think critically. 5% of professors actually believe that their role is to influence students. Of those 5%, 
it's close to zero who actually have an influence on students because when we look at student surveys, we know that they can see professors who like to indoctrinate coming from you know 10 paces away. Like they they know what's happening, and so it's not effective. And I will tell you, um, as a you know, I, I have no no desire to indoctrinate my students, but I couldn't even if I wanted to. So the, the very basis and premise for all of this is ridiculous. It assumes that academics have power that they don't have. But I will say that again, looking at history. Fascist and totalitarian regimes have gone after academics uh, because even though they don't necessarily try to assert their voice in the public sphere, they're saying things that they're exposed. They're they're exposing um, the rhetoric. They're exposing the fascism. They're exposing the slide to totalitarianism. And so, having a state in uh, the United States of America passing such legislation, I think should be a five alarm. I'm, there are so many five alarm bells going off right now in terms of democracy. This is a really big one. When you come after your academics, you're coming after ideas. And I will say that, you know, I, I'm going on a little too long here about this, but obviously I'm passionate about it. Um, it, it this is happening across the United States with critical race theory, where you misdefine something which is basically a standard tool where you look at race as a system and not just in systemic and institutional, not just individual level. Uh, it's a very, you know, it, it's a, it's a uh, necessity to understanding racism in America to understand it in terms of systems. It is, it's just an analytic tool. And yet you set it up as a boogeyman and then you try to use, uh, you know, sliding toward fascism tactics to silence folks who are teaching it. I mean, really, where are we? Are we, you know, that the G General Milley said he was concerned about Reichstag, like where, where are we on that slide to fascism? The other party which seems to be targeted by fascists would be journalists. So, you know, not only do you not want academics teaching your children, you certainly do not want journalists reporting the truth. So there, there's two um, people that get targeted pretty strongly. I, I was uh, afraid that there might be a little bit of a break between Trump and DeSantis when Trump demanded that DeSantis come to our place where we live, Sarasota County, for a rally that Trump did. And DeSantis decided to stay in Miami with a building that had fallen down and people were being found dead. And uh, that didn't work for Trump. I mean, that doesn't work for him. He wanted DeSantis by his side. And to get back at him, he never mentioned his name at the rally. I didn't know that. I, I mean, I knew DeSantis didn't go. I think DeSantis made a very wise choice, um, you know, uh, given that disaster or no, because Trump was obviously going to try to uh, outman him at that rally. Very good. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So DeSantis did what he did, which was to stay with the, uh, the tragedy in Surfside, Florida. And, uh, and Trump decided, well, I'm not even going to mention him. <laughs> I'm in his state, but who knows? That's so Trumpian, actually. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's stick with that for just a moment on this, uh, the, what it is to be Trump and to be Trump in Trump's circumstances right now. Politicians still go down to kiss the ring and anything else he wants kissed in Mar-a-Lago. Yes, that happens. But we are looking at a mortal threat, thanks to the prosecutors in New York and a grand jury, a mortal threat to the Trump organization, which financially speaking is the Trump universe. 
And I think of Mr. Weisselberg, who is now under indictment. He's facing some fairly serious charges that would include, if convicted, jail time. And I guess what I wanted to ask you about that, Caroline, is in your assessment of systems of power and, shall we say, human culture, human beings at meaningful work, what sort of person in your experience and in your estimation would actually surrender any portion of their personal liberties through incarceration for the sake of Donald Trump? Well, he hasn't proven to be the most loyal person, right? I mean, he's essentially turned on every every person he's brought in and praise. I'm just thinking of like poor Rex Tillerson or, uh, you know, um, Orrin Hatcher. I mean, they're just all of these um, folks that he's turned on over the years who were so loyal to him, his attorney general, uh, I mean, just, it, it doesn't seem like anyone who's going to support him is going to support him out of loyalty. What it seems like is uh, they are afraid of the threat of him mobilizing forces against them. So whether it's Republicans who uh, think that the violent insurrection of January 6th was a really big problem, but they are not voting to investigate it and they're afraid to speak out because he will run and support a candidate to oppose them in their primary, um, or whether it's you know folks who are worried that he's going to go after them in social media, which I guess is less of a threat now that he's been banned from Twitter and Facebook. Um, but it, it's mostly out of threat, I would say, not loyalty. And I think that Donald Trump does a very, I think he's a bit of a, a, a mercenary. I think there's evidence of this, right, that he gathers information that will harm you. So if you harm him, it's a tit for tat. Do you think that Weisselberg will turn on Donald Trump? I think that they are putting pressure on Weisselberg to get him uh, to turn on perhaps some other people. I'm looking at, so who knows what's happening behind the scenes. Right. What, it, it seems really clear that the grand jury, uh, that they're putting the screws on him in order to get him obviously to turn on Trump, uh, but also to turn on other members of the organization. Um, he's just the beginning. He's he's certainly not the end in this investigation. And yes. I would say if I were, were the, the Trump family, I would be concerned uh, about a number of things. I mean, obviously, because it's, you know, advanced to the stage uh, of an indictment, but also the fact that you see that the state and local authorities teaming up, which is which is unheard of. Normally, they're you know competitive. They, uh, in fact, uh, will, may be competing against each other in elections in the future. So it's not these offices. Uh, the state attorney general and, and New York, they don't typically work together, and their collaboration on this means that they have a lot of resources behind them and and teamwork, which you you just don't typically see. So I I think that the Trump organization. Um, it is rightfully shaking in its boots. I mean, if you look at the evidence of what they did, what they did, right, the thing that they've, that what we, what we know in terms of the charges, and it's not, it's the beginning, not the end, is that they were giving um, their, their leadership, their you know, most valued employees, compensation that went so far beyond normal compensation, like houses and trips and cars, and they weren't taxing them as though that was compensation. So that's a really obvious direct violation of our tax code. I said it's going to be Al Capone all over again. They'll, they'll get him on taxes and instead of something else. Um, I also heard that, you know, Weisselberg is not the last person. He's the first person. And because he is so high up in the organization, it naturally says to me, you know, I think the children are going to be one of the dominoes coming up. You know, maybe Ivanka, maybe Don Jr., 
And so that will be interesting too, to see, you know, what happens. Cause it's not a large organization to my understanding. They don't have thousands or tens of thousands of employees. I've heard yes. it's actually very few people working there. Very good point, Suzanne. And you did, I remember you mentioning that it would be an Al Capone situation with Donald Trump, you know, that, that he would uh, uh, inspire a violent insurrection. He would do all of these things. He would, you know, uh, he would uh, negotiate with foreign countries to interfere in our elections, but that's not what they would get him on. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's hard to say the Trump organization is so shady, right? They're not particularly mm -hmm. transparent and the, the number of shell companies makes that even more difficult to know who's employed, but it does appear to be very much a family business. Yeah. And there are satellites to this family, one of which notably, though I think he has fallen out of favor and can't collect on a legal bill because the notion of Donald Trump <laughs> paying a lawyer is absurd. But I'm thinking about Rudy Giuliani. I can still recall him walking through the streets on 9-11 and I certainly would not rank him among the heroes, those the fallen, those who went into the buildings, they ran into harm's way. So we're talking about leagues of difference and significance in their service. Nevertheless, Rudy Giuliani, even before 9-11, garnered a reputation as America's mayor because good things, good trends were happening in New York. And when this atrocity struck, he was there representing the face of New York. I admired him. I can remember thinking well of him. And today, with or without the dripping hair dye, and all those the, the bad visuals and whatnot, I look at Rudy Giuliani and I can't help but see a streak of pathos there. There's, it just causes me to ask, and Suzanne and I am watching the news, I'll ask her sometime, what happened to Rudy Giuliani? I mean, what happened to him? You know, I, I have that same response. I mean, I was in, uh, you know, in New York, 9-11, down at ground zero, waiting with water bottles, and socks and waiting for them to find folks. And Rudy Giuliani uh, during that time was a pillar of strength. Um, yes, he, he didn't engage in heroism, but he was the face of uh, the response to 9-11. Uh, it, it seems like an awfully um, steep and quick fall with Donald Trump. And I would say that I've seen this with others too. I think Lindsey Graham, who went from being a relatively reasonable senator or someone I never agreed with, but could on occasion reach across the aisle and say something that seemed reasonable. And he worked quite a bit with his buddy, John McCain, the senator from Arizona who passed. Uh, and today he, he seems disingenuous and foolish. And I, I can't help but think of, of the number of people who have gotten close to Donald Trump and have essentially been used by him and been made into very different people. Um, I, yeah, Rudy Giuliani, I think is the most obvious example of this. And it seems strange to be talking about this, but I think as we're talking, a lot of people are probably listening and saying, yeah, why, why does that happen? Um, and I think it happens because Donald Trump asks people to do things um, that are less ethical and less moral, and he puts a lot of pressure on them to do so. And so they end up, you know, he just has a lot of whatever it is, whether it's because he has dirt on them or because he's very persuasive, whatever it is, he's talking them into doing things that they wouldn't do on their own. And I think that's what we've seen with his entire presidency. I think it makes somebody like Michael Cohen that much more interesting 
that he put a hand up and said, stop, I'm going to stop right now. I'm going to stop. And uh, obviously his going to jail had something to do with that, but he didn't, he really turned around quite a bit. Don't you think from where he started out being, you know, Trump's go-to guy? Well, he's certainly a straight shooter now. I mean, it, it is remarkable. Think of the number of people who've made 180s in his presence, mostly negatively, right? But Michael Cohen, yes. I think, yes. has, has gotten some redemption. It, yes. it does feel, it. it's so odd to be discussing this about a president when he was president and then a former president, right? It feels, it really feels like we're talking about some sort of a, a gangster time. I mean, he, yes. Just, this is what happened with the office of the presidency. He so demeaned it with... Yes with normalizing uh, behavior that would otherwise be unacceptable and some, some of it even criminal. Donald Trump, he's, you know, you just, you can't get that ghost out of the, the closet, or I should say you can't put it back in the closet because the ghost keeps showing up again. And so we look at the midterm elections and uh, this is coming up on our break here. So and we can have the, the Trump two minutes here before we I go to gonna break. I was going to say, after break, we have a whole lot of other things. We oh, want yeah. To talk Lots about. of stuff to talk about. But one example of the kind of uh, people say shenanigans, that's an overused word in a soft one, the, the kind of deviltry of which Donald Trump is capable in electoral terms will show up in 2022. That we know. Two cases in particular, Caroline. And the easy one to mention is Liz Cheney. I mean, that's a, that's a no-brainer that he's going to go after her. But he's going to dip into the Senate well also because way out there in Alaska, he has a score to settle with so many people, and he yet he has this radar, and he's never going to forget Lisa Murkowski. He's going to go all the way up there to the great, great north to try to fell her. And Lisa Murkowski is someone who got beaten in a primary by a Tea Party darling, ran as a run-in can, a write-in rather, a write-in candidate, and won re-election. Yep. I mean, it feels like we're in seventh grade. He definitely has a revenge uh, scorecard, right? He's he's going through and, and getting back at people. So there is a reason why people don't don't speak out against Donald Trump. And here it is. Um, and I love Liz Cheney. I don't know if, if you saw the report that on the floor when Jim Jordan was trying to say, you know, when they're under siege on January 6th, uh, Liz Cheney, uh, Jim Jordan saying, oh, all the women should get out of the aisle. You know, let's protect the women. And Liz Cheney said, get away from me. You effing did this, right? Like she went after mm -hmm. him and, and called him on the carpet as it was happening, um, as he's engaging in like this, you know, benevolent sexism to protect the ladies. Uh, I just, I, the fact that she has been silenced by the party that, so for me, Donald Trump is a concern, but what's more concerning to me is his uh, the fact that he still resonates with the American public and he has so much power in the House and the Senate and with, with Republican leadership to the point where someone like Liz Cheney, who just tells the truth, like they all did right after the violent insurrection, they all turned around and said it was Donald Trump, right? Whether it was Mitch McConnell, um, you know, or uh, Lindsey Graham. I mean, they acknowledged that it was Donald Trump and that it was a problem and it was a threat to our democracy. And then 100, you know, 180 degree shift. A couple months later, they are stripping Liz Cheney of her leadership. They are uh, trying to silence her. And I would anticipate um, that Donald Trump will go after her heavily in the next election. And those were just tourists anyway, Jim. Oh, yeah, that was uh, clearly I've seen so much <laughs> film and there's still more to see of all that tourism going on yeah, there on the Capitol steps there and people died. 
Well, we are talking to Caroline Heldman. We always have a plethora of topics to discuss. It's a joy to have her with us. Let's go ahead and take our one break of this hour. And when we come back, we're going to talk about justice, question mark. And I am speaking of the strange and convoluted case of Bill Cosby. Stick with us. We are Manson Mitchell, and you are tuned in to the home of Alternative Talk in Seattle, AM 1150. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. We all make promises, big and small, tested over time and distance, tried by circumstances and decisions. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I do solemnly swear to bear true faith and allegiance. To help you when you're in need. To tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. To be considerate and caring courageous and strong for better for worse in sickness and in health to love and cherish to be your loving faithful friend partner child parent neighbor one of our most important commitments is to support our nation's veterans learn how you can help a veteran going through a difficult time by visiting maketheconnection.net On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed political science professor Caroline Heldman for her analysis of political events from the latest news. On Saturday, Carl Petri returns to talk about his latest book, Somewhere the Dead Are Singing. Keep it down over there. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. Talk radio that will get you thinking. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our very special guest, Caroline Heldman. What makes Caroline Heldman even more special is that on the break, I looked up and this is her 20th visit, Gary. 20. That's the undisputed truth. That's the undisputed truth. We, we call that rarefied air. And I was saying earlier, as I was introducing her, she's been on for so long and so many times that I need an updated bio, which she is sending. The book, her most recent book that I I know of is called Protest Politics 
in the marketplace, consumer activism in the corporate age. Gary and I have read this book. It is a fabulous book. We've talked about it before, and I suspect we will talk about this again in mm -hmm. the future because it, it is really that good. But in addition to this book, um, if you could let our listeners know how they can find out more about you, Caroline, a website, social media, anything that you want to mention. Yeah, my website is Dr. Caroline Heldman, and uh, I uh, just put out a, a new book, uh, Madam President, are we, so the updated version, right, Gender and Politics on the Road to the White House. Um, I also put out a book, Women, Power, and Politics, the Fight for Gender Equality, uh, two years ago. So a couple of, of other uh, books focused on uh, an intersectional approach to looking at gender justice. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and even TikTok uh, at Caroline Heldman. The rest of this hour, those are exactly the things that we want to talk to you about. With one exception that just occurred to me. Suzanne, you're going to love this, my dear. And Carolina, if you're not a viewer, okay, we'll move on. But I am so curious to know if you have seen, and if so, what is your opinion of a totally unique television program on AMC, as I watch my language here, the show, which is about midway through its run in the first season, is called Kevin Can F Himself. And the very wonderful Amy Murphy, Annie, Annie Murphy, she has all these A names there. I'm really going to have to write her a fan letter and say, can you pick something with a B or there? Because <laughs> it's like, and Alice and Amy, Alexis, just pick one there. But uh, Annie Murphy, who's a wonderful actress, really coming into her own. And she is the star of what amounts to a hybrid show that gives you a very stark contradistinction, a counterpoint of one woman's life as she is in crisis. Have you seen it? And what do you think of this show? Gary, oddly enough, I am halfway through the first episode. I actually started watching it last night because a friend recommended it. So I, I can't weigh in on, on it, but wow, it really takes the sitcom genre and turns it on its head. It does, and we have enjoyed it. We've seen every episode that has been aired normally without subscribing to AMC. And I think there's only going to be six or seven episodes in the first season. We've seen the first four, right. first four. So uh, we also recommend it as uh, really taking a look at those sitcoms from a completely different way. Also having to do with gender and equality. And one of the things before we get into the main topic is when you're talking about rewriting about a woman in the White House, um, are, are, can we count Kamala as vice president? Are we close to a woman in the White House if we have a number two there? Well, I think it, it is a very important step because the biggest, and getting back to media, the biggest way in which we make things normal, meaning they no longer are abnormal, meaning we accept them and don't really question them, like, for example, a woman president, the way we get to that is by seeing it in media first. And a number of political scientists, including myself, have looked at uh, representations 
of black presidents, for example, and Latinx presidents, um, and, and how about after about 40 years of seeing that in media, it becomes normal. Now for women presidents, we just haven't seen that in the media except for about the last 10 years. So we're way behind, but this is important because media, you know, as much as we want to say, oh, we're not influenced by it, the advertising industry uh, would, would beg to differ. The whole point, right, is that images and storylines and themes and tropes matter an awful lot in shaping our, our lived experiences and our perceptions. Um, if you look at, at media content, it tells you who matters in a society who doesn't right some some groups are just just don't even show up they matter that little and some when they do show up are shown as tropes and stereotypes and so um, you dehumanize them and they end up mattering less um, it also tells us you know uh, who we should love what careers we should go into uh, what we what we should value how we should spend our time uh, it certainly tells us who gets to be a leader and be seen as a legitimate leader and who does not. Uh, Gina Davis was uh, not the first, but the most prominent woman uh, president and commander in chief. And you probably don't even remember the show, right? It was 20 years ago and it went off the air pretty quickly. Um, we've seen very few examples of women in this position in media. And so it's not normal to us. It's also, if you think about what makes presidential leadership, uh, presidential leadership, it's hyper-masculinity. So even men who get close to that office, uh, it's not enough to just be a man. You have to be a hyper-macho man. So when I talked about, you know, Donald Trump, who's going to come and out-macho uh, DeSantis, that's exactly what he would do in order to seem more presidential. Like he did in the last election, he talked about little Marco Rubio. He played it, you know, diminished his masculinity. He actually talked about hand size, which was a stand-in for another, the size of another appendage, right? He's doing, you know, we're going to do push-up contests with Mitt Romney. Um, and, and Donald Trump is maybe the extreme, but throughout American history, uh, male candidates for the presidency have had to out-macho one another to be seen as properly presidential. So imagine what that does to a woman who doesn't, who, who it has a much harder time getting into hyper-masculinity. And in fact, the moment at which she is hyper-masculine, it'll be held against her, right? Because then she's right. not properly feminine. We call this, you know, the double bind of women's leadership. And so yep. all of this to say that Kamala Harris being in that position makes it seem normal to have a woman that close to the White House. The presidency, I think, is... is as, as close as it is, it's still light years away because we think of that office in very different terms than we think of the vice presidency. We think of the vice presidency as kind of a passive do nothing office, even though some vice presidents like Dick Cheney have been much more active, but the presidency is symbolically way more important and way more hyper-masculine. All of this to say, um, this is one step closer, but it's still a pretty big step off from having a woman president. And you can see this in the way in which Republicans are going after Kamala Harris, right? Over almost nothing. Ooh, there's, you know, the people in her office can't get access to her and this becomes front page news. Like they're just finding any little thing because they know that she is, you know, that Biden's gonna try to get her into that position, that that is his legacy, that he's gonna open the door for not just a woman, but a woman of color to be in the presidency. Thank you, thank you. All right, we thought of having you back as the moment the moment that Gary and I saw on TV, Bill Cosby being released from jail. Breaking news. Gary says, we've got to call Caroline Heldman. My mind went straight to you as intimately involved as you were on behalf of the victim, Bill Cosby's victim. And here we are in a situation where just today and all the backfilling you can do so gracefully 
Caroline. But now I read, as of today, Bill Cosby is prepared to seek through legal means compensation for all the time he spent in jail. I knew it was coming. You knew it was coming there. But now he's taking this seriously because he feels that he was wronged. And what I want to know is, to begin with, does he have grounds for such a suit? Um, sure. He does have grounds for a suit because his, because on a technicality, it was overturned. Right. Um, so he's still guilty. He was found guilty by a, a jury of his peers. Um, his own words convicted him. Right. So just for context, for folks who don't know, Bill Cosby, 64 women have gone public. I can tell you, I know of dozens who have not gone public, but have the same story. But 64 have gone public to say that he professionally groomed them, he got to know their families, he drugged them, and then he sexually violated them, most, mostly rape. Um, some of them fought him off, some of them woke up during um, his, uh, his violence. Um, some don't remember what happened, but they know that they were drugged and they're they're missing a couple days of their life. It's I'm, and I'm not making I'm not being hyperbolic here. Heidi Thomas took the stand and said she couldn't remember three days when she was at his house. She got off the plane and then she was getting back on the plane and she has glimmers. But this this insane perpetration, this story, I've heard it um, again and again and again. So 64 women have gone public. There's no doubt that this man is a violent serial rapist. And in fact, when he was in jail, when he was in prison, um, they sat down with him to determine what level of sex offender he would be deemed. Uh, and they decided that he would be deemed a violent sexual predator. And you don't just get that. You get that because a psychiatrist is talking with you and uh, they you know, talk to others around you and uh, they do health assessments. So he got the highest, so once he was in prison, they deemed him a violent sexual predator. I would say that even though we think of him as an old man now, his uh, compulsion to do this is probably pretty great. Nobody, no woman is safe around him given the way he operates. I'm just saying every woman who goes around him, I, I get fearful about because we tend to, to discount him and think he's not a threat anymore. I would say that, you know, based upon what I know about serial rapists, they are always a threat. There's a compulsion there to engage in this, in this behavior. Um, yeah, so that's the, the perhaps too long um, backfill on, on what he has done. The legal part, uh, he had two trials uh, in the state of Pennsylvania. The first was a uh, hung jury. The second uh, convicted him on all three counts, guilty, guilty, guilty. Um, and there was only one woman within the statute of limitations, Andrea Constan. The statute of limitations is an arbitrary time period put forth, which shouldn't exist if you have the evidence, but it does uh, in most states. Uh, we overturned it in California, but most states have that time limit. So Dre Constan comes forward. They put five what are called bad act witnesses on the stand who are women who could speak to the same pattern of behavior. So he was, uh, con he was convicted. Uh, nothing can change that. He was convicted by a jury of his peers. So getting off on the technicality doesn't change that. The oddness, though, of how he got off, I think, is worth noting. Um, so the story is that he cut a deal uh, with a district attorney who, you know, would later go on to represent Donald Trump. Um, he cut a deal with the district attorney that he would not be criminally prosecuted. And um, as a result of that, uh, he then was more forthcoming than he would have been in a civil deposition in which 
he admitted to buying quite, you know, drugs for women intending to have sex with them. So his own words convict him. So uh, then a new DA comes in and says, looks at the deal that was made and finds out there actually wasn't a deal. They didn't go before the judge and they didn't file a case number. And they spent about five hours in court looking to see whether or not there was an actual deal. They decided that there was not a deal. And so they went ahead with the prosecution. And, and so the first uh, DA was Bruce Castor, uh, Trump man, Bruce Castor, the second, um, Mr. Steele uh, goes in, gets a conviction. And then they took it to the highest, you know, the Supreme Court in the state of Pennsylvania. And the Supreme Court upheld a verbal agreement, a backroom deal. So according mm. to the Pennsylvania legislature, right, the laws, the law of the land, in order to get an immunity deal, you have to go before a judge and get a sign off. And you have, that, that means you'll have a case number. Neither of those things exist. So I don't know how many people realize that this technicality doesn't even make sense. That ruling does not make sense. Wow. So, yeah, let that sink in. Yeah. As a, but if he this... can't be retried, nor would he likely go back to jail, would he, Caroline? Well, here's an odd thing about that ruling, too. They added a provision where he cannot be retried which, why? I mean, that doesn't make sense. Um, he should be able to be retried. So not only did they overturn it on a technicality with a backroom deal, they then went, went forth a step further than that and said that he can't be tried again. So man who, you know, 64 women public, a lot more not public. What does that mean about girls and women in our society when, when we send them that message, right? That all of these institutions are gonna collude to protect this very powerful predator. There's a sociopathy involved here that I am not credentialed or able to discuss. But having the Y chromosome, let me say this, Caroline, and it's just, it's a weird thing that guys will think about sometimes. I don't talk about it with other men very much, but I, I harbor my own thoughts. And in the case of Bill Cosby, being a man, I look at him and I go, why would you need to do that? What's going on in that noggin of yours that would motivate this violent behavior when, let's face it, he was a married man, and yet being a superstar and beloved by America and perhaps internationally, I guess that's true as a TV star, movie star, uh, the, the, the 80s at one point was being referred to as the Cosby decade. Women would be, or certain women, a subset of women, would be throwing themselves at the guy irrespective of his marital status. So it wasn't like he was... Uh, short of feminine company and attention and affection. What is it about a certain type of man, in your view, Caroline, that motivates them to perform these bodies of women and to be so violent when there's no shortage of opportunities for him anyway? Well, yeah, that's a great question, Gary. And, and uh, the... Beyond that, he is a very specific type of serial rapist, right, who, who likes to rape um, folks who are passed out. So it's like one, it, 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 it's sliding toward necrophilia, right, in the sense that he likes passive victims. Um, and 
it's while rate motives vary and there's no kind of way to really know, um, it really is a combination of three things we know from serial rapists. It's a lack of empathy. It's a narcissistic personality disorder or a, a maybe beyond that, right? Maybe it's a psychopath or a sociopath and then feelings of hostility toward women. I don't know where where this, this awful combo comes in for him. Uh, but the, when people say rape is more about power than it is about sex, that's what they're talking about. And this man, I would say, beyond the rapes, incapacitating other human beings is also a serious violation. And we don't tend to think about that, but it, that's a huge part of the trauma of his survivors is the fact that they were incapacitated and the horror of uh, kind of waking up a little bit and realizing that you have been drugged and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't move your body. I mean, listening to Andrea Constan on the stand speak of how terrified she was of what would happen next because she couldn't move. Yikes. This is horrifying. Um, uh, let me move on to another side. And thank you for your commentary there, Caroline. Uh, we'll see how this plays out. It's, it's just bad. Another well, thing. Well, yes. I was going to toss in here before all of this became public, Gary and I went to see Bill Cosby. He was at a Sarasota venue and, we said, oh, let's go see a comedian for a change instead of a rock group. A living legend, you know. Yeah. Okay, we got to see Bill Cosby. Good yeah. show. It was and a good show. He told a lot of family-friendly stories. And we told everybody we went to see him. And then later, we find out this other stuff comes out. And we're going, oh, my God. And we went to see him. Yeah, we're looking right at the man you and know, watching him perform. If we had known that, we would have never gotten the tickets. We right. would have never, you know, given him that much. And I, and I hope that you know, his career is completely done for, I hope. I would I hope. doubt it. I mean, I think Felicia Rashad is very, you know, wants her, wants her royalties to start up again. I think a lot of folks on the Cosby show want their royalties to start up again. And I wouldn't be surprised if he had a, uh, you know, I, he'll reemerge, he'll make money somehow, which is okay. good because there's a lot of civil lawsuits coming his way. So he's going to need to make some cash to compensate properly. Compensate. Oh, good. Oh, good. Civil lawsuits. Okay. We've got six minutes or so. Caroline, there. break it down as much as you care to in the, the limited time we have left. Voting rights. There, there is a legislative war going on state by state in nearly all 50 states about access to the ballot box and the conditions under which one may vote. How is that going? Well, let's see. Uh... 48 states have proposed voter suppression laws, and let's call them what they are, they're voter suppression laws, right? When you're, when you're passing uh, laws that say you can't give out water to people who are standing in line, when you're saying that you can't uh, get friends and family to bundle, uh, you know, uh, perfectly legitimate ballots from rural areas in, in the Navajo Nation in Arizona and drive them into a polling location. Let, let's just call it what it is. It's voter suppression, right? When you're saying you can't do voter drives on a Sunday and black communities, I mean, come on, it's so obvious, right? Um, 18 states have already passed these restrictive voting laws. Um, the recent Supreme Court ruling in Arizona indicates that um, the Supreme Court's not going to be a backstop. And just for a little bit of, you know, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to stand in the way of this 
absolute, again, five alarm threat to our democracy. We've got a couple of them going on. We've got the violent insurrection and we've got the, the voting, uh, you know, the, the violent insurrection was an attempt to change the outcome of a free and fair election on one day. Um, what's happening now is just the violent insurrection every day, right? It's this, it's a gentler, milder thing, but it's, boy, is it happening. Um, the Supreme Court gutted the voting. So 1965, we passed the Voting Rights Act uh, to, you know, protect the, the right to vote. Uh, that was being denied Blacks and Latinx people and other folks in the United States. Um, in 2011, in the Shelby case, the Supreme Court gutted federal oversight of states that have a history of passing racist voter suppression laws. So that's, that oversight disappeared. And now today in 2020, um, the only like last little piece that the court could be involved, this idea that laws are, are racist on their face, as the Navajo Nation argued uh, in the Arizona case, the Supreme Court said, nope. So basically at this point in time, you have to look at the legislative branch, you have to look at the, you know, the Congress passing HR1 or SB1. And that means that Biden has to look at a filibuster because it's not going to, it's already passed. The Voting Protection Act has already passed through the House. It's not going to pass through the Senate unless um, there is, you know, a shift on the filibuster. And there are two senators standing in the way, right? Kirsten Sinema, uh, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin. Uh, Joe Manchin has said maybe he will look at abolishing the filibuster, uh, but it is not hyperbolic. If you talk to, to historians and political scientists right now, it's not hyperbolic to say that the balance of our democracy uh, is in play right now. It, it is under serious threat because a minority, because the Republican Party, instead of being a wide, big umbrella party, party of ideas with lots of different folks and it has thrown itself in to be the party of white ethno-nationalism and so the numbers have shrunk so the only way they can maintain uh their competitiveness in elections is to rig them that says it all and the filibuster itself i must tell you caroline that uh, maybe i missed that day in civics class way back when but only recently has it come home to me that the filibuster itself, which could be seen as maneuvering to protect the interests of the minority party, to keep things fair, I don't know that that's a level playing field, but nevertheless, I was unaware until very recently that the filibuster actually echoes Jim Crow laws. That's correct. The filibuster was put in place uh, just like the three-fifths comp compromise in the Constitution uh, was put in place to give slave-owning states uh, more power or, or disproportionate power in Congress. So the filibuster is the ability, right, of one senator to stop major legislation, um, and it was established. It's, it's not a part of the Constitution. It was established much later, and it very much uh, is a, a tool of Jim Crow. And we're returning to Jim Crow, right? We are returning to wide uh, gaps and racial gaps in terms of voting. My, my understanding is that the filibuster is not in the Constitution. And is this a, a, just a practice, a rule? Where does it fall? Where, That's right. It's not what, in the Constitution. What gives it its authority? Well, so it was originally used by the Whigs in, I'm going to say, around 1840, um, when they filibustered to prevent allies of uh, Andrew Jackson from uh, from enacting a resolution to censure him, right? So it, it has a history, and then it was codified into the rules of the Senate. So it's been with us for- well, it's, in a rule. it's a Senate rule. It is a Senate rule. And it's a Senate rule that's okay. been waived. Think about Amy Coney Barrett. They waived it in order to get, you know, rush her through when they stole the Supreme yeah. Court seat, right, Merrick Garland, but then they rushed through Amy Coney Barrett. They, they suspended the filibuster to do that. So we have at various times done that. Hmm. 
Interesting. I guess it's good to know that the filibuster itself is not enshrined in the Constitution then. It's doable, but it comes down to counting heads. Do you have the votes? Yeah, and at the end of the day, when you have minority rule, meaning uh, a representative, members of the Senate who represent a fraction of members, uh, Democratic senators, and but they're running the show. I mean, that's minority rule. So at the end of the day, the filibuster shouldn't be served uh, serving the function of minority rule. I agree. Dr. Caroline, Caroline Heldman, number thank 20. You. Yes, that's right. And can't wait for next time. There, I did want to mention protest politics in the marketplace, consumer activism in the corporate age, one of six titles, I believe. They're authored by Caroline Heldman. This one's going to become prominent in practice. So stay tuned and watch all of that breaking news. We would love to have you back anytime you consent to join us, Caroline. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gary and Suzanne. Always a pleasure. All right. Stay tuned for the Christine Upchurch Show. And later at 1 o'clock Pacific time, Gary Mance on Trip Talk. Join us tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific right here on AM 1150. Have a great weekend, everyone.